Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, we're going to go back and review a discussion that we had when we were recording the chest pain wave one seminar series about making dollars and cents out of stress testing. Our guests are Dr. Kristen Newby, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Duke University Medical Center and focuses on acute care cardiology and chest pain evaluation. Our second speaker is going to be Dr. Michael Contos, who's from Virginia Commonwealth University, is an associate professor with appointments in the uh, Department of Medicine, Cardiology, Radiology, and Emergency Medicine, and he is interested in cardiac imaging, biomarkers, and quality, again, surrounding chest pain and testing. The first question we had for Dr. Newby is, how do we decide if a patient needs advanced workup for chest pain, including a stress test? The first thing I just wanted to talk a little bit about was defining the low-risk patient, and I think this is no surprise to anyone who's participating that the key hallmarks of that are a normal or near-normal electrocardiogram, negative baseline and usually serial cardiac markers of injury, and then the integration of risk scores. And I show three that are most widely used here, the Timmy risk score at zero or one, the Grace risk score at less than 109, and the heart risk score of less than three. The challenge is that low risk is not no risk. And once we get to this low risk group, there's still about a 2% likelihood of having an acute coronary syndrome, but the likelihood of underlying coronary disease is also very small. So to try to facilitate selecting this low risk group even further, accelerated diagnostic protocols have been developed. The one shown here is the ADAPT protocol that combines the serial cardiac markers with electrocardiography with a risk score uh, and is able to increase the identification of low-risk people who could potentially be safely discharged from the emergency department by anywhere from 8, in some cases, up to 16 to 20%. But the challenge is there's still a concern about this residual likelihood of coronary disease or acute coronary syndrome at that low rate within this population. And that has led, even in these accelerated diagnostic protocols, to the the use of stress testing, either prior to discharge or within 72 hours of discharge. So we know that somewhere between 80 and 90% of all patients who are evaluated in the emergency department for chest discomfort or other symptoms that might represent acute coronary syndromes actually will not have an acute coronary syndrome. Because of this concern of the residual risk, approximately 50% of these patients will have some form of stress testing or other non-invasive testing or ultimately may even end up with angiography. But getting back to this concept that this is a very low-risk group, the yield of stress testing is low, and false positives are increased in that group without improving outcomes. And again, this is a problem with the prevalence of coronary disease being low in this population. So this is a study by Herman and colleagues that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2013 that helps us understand this concept. There's a peak in stress testing probably in the most appropriate years, the 40 to 60-year-old age group. But what you also see is that the percent of positive results is very low. And given that the prevalence is very low, 
it's not surprising, as we see in this table, that the number of the positive stress tests that's confirmed to actually represent coronary disease is only about 50%, which means about 50% of those are false positive. So that generates, obviously, a lot of expense, a lot of time, and a lot of inefficiency in the evaluation of chest discomfort if stress testing is used as a routine test in the emergency department in this population. Similarly, if we look at claims data on almost 421, 422,000 individuals who presented to the emergency department and had a primary or secondary diagnosis of chest pain, you can see that the overall MI rates at seven days and at 190 days are very low. So only 0.1% at seven days and 0.3% and 90 days. So the, the underlying prevalence of disease and the likelihood of adverse outcomes is quite low. So that's led to a lot of discussion about the utility of stress testing. And in part, this is defensive medicine, as shown uh, in the top editorial. It may be legally necessary, but is it ethically justified and is it financially justified? Similarly, in the editorial by Rita Redberg, she raises the question that maybe it's not which test we do, whether it's an exercise stress test or it's a nuclear or an echocardiographic stress test. Rather, is it whether any test um, should be done? And I think that's one of the things that is a hot and burning question in this field. And I just want to go through Bayes' theorem, because I think if we think about Bayes' theorem and its application in this population, this all starts to come into focus. And basically, what's shown here is that the ability of a test to identify the presence or absence of disease is not only dependent on how good the test is, its sensitivity and specificity, but also on one's pretest probability that disease um, exists in that population. So if we take that a step further and we put that in context, in Bayes' theorem, if we have an abnormal test, it's more likely to be false positive in a patient who has a low pretest likelihood of disease. Similarly, a negative test is more likely to be a false negative if our pretest probability of disease is very high. And what we see is the, the curves of positive, the post-test likelihood given the pretest likelihood of a positive study depending on what our pretest likelihood of disease is. So the first thing you notice is that if we're somewhat uncertain, so we have a pretest likelihood of somewhere between 40 and 60 percent, or we could flip a coin at whether that person with chest pain had coronary disease or not, if our test is positive, we can go from 50% to 80% on our post-test likelihood. So we get a lot of diagnostic information. Similarly, if the test is negative and we're in that intermediate pretest likelihood range, we can reduce the probability on the post-testing with a negative test to only about 10 to 15% percent likelihood of underlying disease. So the test is very useful when we have pretest uncertainty of the diagnosis. But if we're dealing with a population like we are in the emergency department with chest pain, where the prevalence of disease is very low, no matter what the result of the test is, we 
inform our post-test likelihood very little. So it doesn't change um, what we thought the answer was by getting a positive test or a negative test. And if anything, we have to deal with these false positive studies. So when the pretest likelihood of disease is less than 20% or greater than 90%, so we're either very certain it's not coronary disease or we're very certain that it is, the test has very limited diagnostic ability. However, it may still have prognostic value in that case. One thing that I've been wondering about listening to you talk is, so if you get one of these scores or pathways that is developed, how does implementation go? And I'm wondering if you can specifically talk about the implementation of the heart score as part of a diagnostic pathway. I'm going to show um, Simon Mahler's work to illustrate this. So he and his colleagues developed what's called the heart score, which is a very practical scoring system for use in the emergency department that depends on historical variables, the electrocardiogram results, a patient's age, their cardiovascular risk factors, and the results of their troponin testing, and integrates that into a score that gives a low-risk or high-risk dichotomization, so low-risk being less than or equal to three um, when the score is integrated. And they have used that in combination with serial biomarker testing specifically to try to identify populations that are low enough risk that they could be sent home from the emergency department without needing stress tests potentially, but certainly not needing it in the emergency department. The pathway is called the heart pathway. It's shown here. It's fairly straightforward. Again, applying this risk score in the context of clinical care. And doing so in their early development and validation of this, about 20% of people would be in that less than or equal to three score range and potentially eligible for early discharge from the emergency department when they came in with chest pain. And then for those who are in the higher risk group, the greater than or equal to four, if their markers were positive, obviously they would warrant additional evaluation and admission. And if they were high risk but their markers remain negative, they proposed in this pathway triaging them to an observation unit or potentially to a hospital ward. And then stress testing might be more appropriate or more valuable in that population. Now, importantly, they tested this pathway in a randomized clinical trial. Now, it was a single center study and a small number of patients, 282 patients who were randomized either to this heart pathway approach using the heart score to identify that low-risk population and separate them from the high-risk population versus usual care, which was based on the ACC AHA guidelines that included at that time a class one indication for stress testing. So the results of this study, I think, are pretty impressive. First of all, the use of the heart pathway reduced the amount of objective testing, so stress testing, by about 12% from almost 70% down to just under 60%. Length of stay, in, particularly in the, the low-risk group, was reduced by 12 hours from 21.9 down to 9.9. 21% increase in early discharge among the low-risk um, group from 18% to nearly 40% 
with no increase in the 30-day MACE rate in the early discharge group and a 6% overall MACE rate in the population. And the figures here show where these gains were made. Overall length of stay did not really change between usual care or the heart pathway. Where the gains were made was in the low-risk group where there was a dramatic reduction in um, length of stay. And then you see a slight increase in risk of stay in the high-risk population, which is where one would appropriately want length of stay potentially to be increased. So I think a great example of, number one, the low risk of implementing um, a protocol like this in terms of MACE in, in the short term in the early discharge group, but also the gains in efficiency in the emergency department and, and deriving from that reductions in cost as well. So what do the guidelines say? And I think the important thing is that the guidelines have been informed by this debate around stress testing, but also by studies like Simon Mahler's randomized trial. And now the ACCHA guidelines provide a class two level of evidence D recommendation that states that it's reasonable for patients with possible ACFs who have a normal serial ECGs and cardiac troponins to have a treadmill ECG which would be the preferred test, or stress myocardial perfusion imaging, or stress echocardiography before discharge or within 72 hours of discharge. So a substantial downgrade of that recommendation from a class one to a class 2A based on these more recent studies. The final thing that I'll highlight is that the guidelines also serve as a backbone for appropriate use criteria. And shown here, are the appropriate use recommendations for stress modalities. I think the first thing to really point out is that stress electrocardiography is the appropriate test when we're dealing with symptomatic individuals but who are low risk in their pretest probability of coronary disease, and particularly when they're able to exercise. And then the challenge, though, is getting that recommendation implemented in practice. And so only about 53% of stress echo in this population is appropriate, 72% for stress MPI. But more importantly is the inappropriate or rarely appropriate use in the symptomatic patients. So over a quarter, nearly 30% of stress echo is inappropriate or rarely appropriately used in the symptomatic population and about 16% for stress MPI. So I think it highlights that we still have a bit of work to do in terms of really taking these practical and theoretical concepts and implementing them in clinical practice. This question might seem a little bit simple, but when we do a treadmill test for a patient, what are we trying to answer? So when we put people on a stress test like this, in addition to coronary disease, we're looking for their functional capacity. So, you know, we could be asking are there symptoms of shortness of breath and fatigue, more physical deconditioning, or is there underlying coronary disease? We also know that if an exercise ECG is negative, it's very unlikely that the person has obstructive coronary disease in the major epicardial vessels. And then we can get a lot of prognostic information from a stress test. And one of the best and most widely used scores is the Duke treadmill score. 
which basically incorporates exercise time, whether or not there's SD segment deviation on the electrocardiographic portion of the stress test, and the participant's angina score, which ranges from no angina to angina, but that's not limiting of exercise or exercise limiting angina, integrates that into a score that ranges from minus 25 to plus 15, with low risk being a score greater than plus 5, intermediate risk being plus 4 to minus 10, and high risk being less than or equal to minus 11. And what you can quickly see is that depending on um, the categorization by the Duke treadmill score, if you're low risk, your five-year mortality is only 3%, 10% in the intermediate group, and 35% in the high-risk group. So we get a lot of prognostic information. Those same score ranges help us determine how severe coronary disease might be if the test is positive. So in the low-risk group, the vast majority of individuals have no significant coronary disease. About 15 or 16% will have single vessel disease. On the contrary, if you're in this high-risk group with a low Duke treadmill score, not only do you have a high five-year mortality, but you have a high likelihood, about 74% will have three-vessel or left main disease. So it gives us a lot of information prognostically. And this is an example. This is another stress testing protocol, but highlights the things we should be looking at when we're looking at the results of a stress test. So I intentionally took off um, the actual read of this, which would be negative adequate. And I think that's what almost everybody goes right to the bottom line, and they forget about the other information that's here. So we should be looking at exercise time during um, these stress stages. We should look for heart rate. Heart rate should gradually increase. We'd like to see people get to their target heart rate to have an adequate test. And we'd also like to see blood pressure gradually increase during the course of the study, and then both heart rate and blood pressure to gradually decrease during exercise. And this is important because there are certain things that um, beyond the treadmill score are important to be looking for. So if you can't achieve 85% of your age-predicted maximum heart rate, that's a high-risk feature um, or suggests the possibility, we, and we need to make sure that the person's not on beta blocker or other rate-controlling medications. But in general, it's not a good sign if you can't achieve your target heart rate. Abnormal heart rate recovery failure to decrease the heart rate about 12 beats per minute from peak is important. Hypotensive response to exercise, someone who starts exercising and their blood pressure drops is highly suggestive of multivessel disease, left ventricular dysfunction, left main disease. And then obviously significant ST segment depression is a high risk finding and diagnostic in the right population. So we're going to move on to Dr. Contos, and my question for you is, what other testing options are available to us besides the stress test? There's a wide variety of ways to actually stress the people. Obviously, most people recognize that um, we put people on the treadmill, but in some areas, we actually do bicycle stress testing. This allows us to do imaging at the same time while they're at full stress. Unfortunately, about half of our patients that present to our stress lab cannot actually exercise sufficiently, so we have to do some sort of chemical or pharmacological test. And there's a wide variety of agents there that are currently available. These include the vasodilators. The most commonly used now is probably regadenosine, which is a A2-specific agent that allows us to actually use it in patients who have significant asthma or COPD 
which was a limitation of the prior two agents. And in those who we can't do brachydenosin either because they have a lot of wheezing or if we're doing a dobutamine pharmacologic stress, we typically will add dobutamine as a stress agent in that situation. What do we do as far as imaging? Well, we can either do no imaging, which is treadmill testing alone, which is the most commonly recommended for the lower risk patients, but oftentimes we do want to add imaging. We'll talk about those particular criteria momentarily. But with nuclear imaging, we're using some type of radioisotope, most commonly the technetium agents, maybe or tetraphosphan. And in some institutions, we'll actually use positron emission tomography or PET imaging. The upside of this is it has a much higher accuracy, better sensitivity and specificity. The downside is typically you need a rubidium generator right in your lab to be able to, to do this. Another common modality we use for imaging is echocardiography, either typically with transthoracic imaging. And now, in about the last decade or so, we have echocardiographic contrast agents that allow us to better opacify the left ventricle and be able to see the endocardium much better and improve overall diagnostic accuracy. These contrast agents are different than what you would use for CT or cath. They're actually tiny little bubbles that cross the pulmonary circulation and get into the left side and allow us to see the left ventricle with improved accuracy. Uh, another imaging modality that's increasingly used in a number of different areas, including the use of assessment of coronary disease is CT coronary angiography. allows a direct assessment of the coronary arteries and stenoses. In some areas, they'll use coronary calcium scoring. This is used to identify very low-risk patients who may not benefit from additional testing at all. This has had some variable outcomes, and we won't talk too much about that in further in discussions here. And then finally, stress MRI is used in a number of institutions as well because it provides both function and perfusion at the same time. However, this is often limited to specific institutions that have expertise, and it's not currently widely used. So just based on that, what we'll talk about today as far as the different type of imaging techniques this is treadmill alone, nuclear echo, and CT and geography. So the first consideration is when we're performing it, when we're thinking about doing a treadmill testing alone, what are the things that go into that decision? Well, first, we have to have an interpretable ECG. This should be, this is fairly straightforward if you have a left bundle, paced rhythm, or lots of ST depression related to LVH restraint, the ECG is just not interpretable and you have to have some sort of imaging. A couple other things are worthwhile to point out from an emergency department point of view. People that have significant aortic stenosis is a limitation. So if you hear a fairly loud systolic ejection murmur, probably need to get an echo before we're going to put them on the treadmill. And then another area where it pops up is patients who have hypokalemia. This is an issue for two different reasons. One, significant hypokalemia, particularly a potassium less than three results in a false positive stress ECGs, and so it can really inhibit your interpretation. And then it also, we don't really like doing dobutamine stresses just because we're giving a fairly high-dose catecholamine, and a patient is hypokalemic, we do worry about additional arrhythmias. And then finally, hypertension is an issue that pops up every now and then in our patients. So in those ops patients that you are planning on stressing the next day, please make sure they get their blood pressure medications. Stress EG has a number of advantages and disadvantages that we all know. It's, despite common misconception, it actually has a very high specificity. It's about 90% if you don't have significant baseline abnormalities. The downside, the sensitivity is significantly lower than other modalities at only about 50%. However, it's important to realize that this is for all comers with coronary disease. If we look at people that are going to have very severe disease, like those with multivessel or left main disease, the sensitivity goes up substantially. 
Other advantages are it's one of the lower costs of our stress modalities. It's fairly available. It can be done in less than an hour, so very convenient to the patient. And then finally, the logistics clearly are easier because you don't have to add that second modality of imaging on top of it. Uh, disadvantages, which you all know, the bigger limitations is we don't get an assessment of LV function. And if you do have abnormalities on the ECG precluding interpretation, obviously it's not the appropriate testing to do in that particular patient population. Stepping back just a little bit, are there patients that we can consider doing only a treadmill in and no additional imaging? Well, first, if they got a good exercise tolerance, that's the perfect patient to do it. And then with an ECG that's normal or near normal, just maybe just fairly few non-specific changes still rely allow the ECG to be diagnostic. And then the final group is particularly those patients who have a fairly low pretest probability of coronary disease. You're not adding extra expense, and you get good exercise tolerance. Once they're completed their test, you can feel fairly confident that they don't have significant underlying coronary disease. Dr. Contos, do we have any ED-specifics outcomes data for using those modalities? One of the largest cohorts comes from UC Davis, where they actually performed almost immediate stress testing in their very low-risk patients. Essentially, patients, if they had a normal ECG, got maybe one troponin, were immediately put on the treadmill. In this cohort of almost 1,000 patients, the vast majority were negative with 640 patients with only one MI in that cohort. And the patients who had non-diagnostic testing, these are patients who did not reach 85% of their predicted maximum. However, still had a negative stress ECG. The risk was a little bit higher at 3%, which included seven patients with revascularization. And finally, those patients who had positive tests, much higher risk. But again, keep in mind that this was still a fairly low-risk population with only 16 events overall, 13 to 14% of the patients, and only four patients had MI. So even if you have a positive stress ECG, it identifies a higher risk, but not necessarily a very high risk patient population. Again, it's what we'll see over and over based on because we are looking at a low risk overall population and, and we're looking at what are pretest and post-test probabilities that will be significantly affected because these patients are low risk. Now, a little bit earlier, you mentioned nuclear imaging options in our discussion, as well as stress echoes. Can you talk a little bit more about those and what they are and when you might consider using them? It's important to kind of step back and look at what are we looking at from a physiological point of view. So if we look at the ischemic cascade, we start out with a significant coronary stenosis. When we do provoke the patient, it results in hypoperfusion to that area, subsequently diastolic and then systolic dysfunction which becomes evident on the stress ECG by ST depression, followed finally at the end of this by symptoms, typically chest pain, pressure, or tightness. One of the advantages of doing some sort of imaging is we're assessing the patient much earlier in the ischemic cascade. With stress echo, we're looking at this particular point where we see wall motion abnormalities as a sign of systolic dysfunction. And with stress perfusion imaging, we're looking even earlier where we're assessing overall hyperperfusion of the coronary circulation. There's a wide variety of different types of imaging that are used. The most common that we see currently are going to be using one of the technetium agents, either Systemibi or Tetrafosmin, depending on what your particular hospital uses and what kind of contract they may have arranged. And they're often done as either a same-day or two-day protocol. Unfortunately, with the enlargement of America, we have a lot of patients in whom image quality doing a low-dose injection uh, which we typically do for the rest study, is not sufficient. So they really need to be imaged over a two-day process. Oftentimes what this entails is 
performing the stress test first. If that looks negative or is fairly low risk, the patient can go home and then come back for an outpatient rest study to compare it with that stress study. But by far, most patients were doing able to stress a patient over a single day. Indications for imaging, whether we're talking about doing echo or stress nuclear, the first most common one is a patient's unable to exercise. Uh, the second most common is an ECG that's not able to be interpreted. This is typically going to be patients who have a left bundle branch block, PACE ECG, or those who have LVH with significant SD depression. A couple other ones that are very uncommon now are they're related to the patients taking digoxin or who have WTPW, which can cause false positive stress ECGs. A question that often comes up is how good are stress imaging? Well, like many of the other tests we'll see when used in the ED, it's fairly accurate. This relates to the overall outcomes over one-year follow-up period for the incidence of death or MI in almost 28,000 patients if you had a normal study. In general, the risk ranges from a, on an average of about 0.5 to 0.6%. It is slightly higher in other areas and some patient populations, just again related to the pretest probability. You are going to see a higher risk in patients who either have diabetes, underlying coronary disease, or can't exercise, as who's illustrated in this study. Warranty period is typically, again, about a half a percent. Again, higher in those patients who have either diabetes, or which the risk goes up to about one and a half to two percent, or if you have underlying coronary disease, again, a higher risk, again, based on your, just a, purely based on your pretest probability. Why do we recommend doing treadmill testing in patients who are at low risk? This was an interesting study published a number of years ago in about over almost 1,400 patients. Well, they looked at the role of the Duke treadmill score in patients who underwent imaging. Patients were classified into one of three groups, low, intermediate, or high, based on the Duke treadmill score. And then they looked at the outcomes based on whether or not the scan, how abnormal the perfusion scan was. So for example, in this cohort here, in the lowest Duke treadmill patients, you can see, similar to the intermediate and high-risk patients, there was a stepwise increase in overall adverse events as the stress perfusion got worse, going from normal to mildly abnormal in the yellow to severely abnormal in the red. However, an important point in this was that this was actually a very small number of cohort of patients. Only 5.8% of the low-risk and less than 4% of all patients had a, a high-risk perfusion scan despite having a low-risk due treadmill score. The vast majority of patients who had a low-risk due treadmill score had normal perfusion or only mildly abnormal perfusion, again indicating that if you can exercise well, there's really not much added value of adding imaging. In fact, in some other studies, they've demonstrated that it's if you can exercise more than 10 minutes on a treadmill, not have chest pain or have EKG changes, imaging adds almost nothing to that particular patient cohort. Next, I'll talk briefly about stress echo. Indications for stress echo are very similar to stress perfusion imaging. One of the key things to keep in mind is the patient has to have an adequate window. We have to be able to see the heart. If we can't do that very well, then we're going to have limitations in overall interpretation. Other things that we do are, are very similar to perfusion imaging. Exercise patients undergo a, typically a Bruce protocol. One of Stress echo is actually one of the hardest things for a sonographer to do because images have to be acquired within 30 to 60 seconds after termination of exercise. If you wait longer than that, the heart rate typically comes down and we miss the underlying ischemia as it often will resolve. 
For those patients who can't exercise, dobutamine stress echo is an alternative. We give dobutamine in sequential increasing doses over three minutes up to a maximum of 40 mics. Atropine is added if the heart rate is not reached. And then images are acquired at baseline at each of the stages. Oftentimes you get better images because the heart rate stays up for longer periods of time. The downside is oftentimes patients can't tolerate the dobutamine either due to side effects from the tachycardia, chest discomfort, or hypotension, and often we have to terminate the test before we get to an adequate heart rate. This probably occurs in about 30% of our patient population. So how do we choose between the two? Well, stress echo tends to be less expensive and there's no radiation exposure and may have overall less shorter test time. We do get an assessment in a cardiac function, although it is a qualitative one, and again, somewhat limited by variable windows. In contrast, stress perfusion imaging tends to be more expensive. There is a radiation exposure. However, with newer techniques, that dose has come down substantially. It does take a little bit longer because we're doing rest images followed by stress images. We do get an assessment of both coronary perfusion and also because we can gate the images, we get an assessment of cardiac function as well. And it's actually a quantitative measurement of heart function. It is somewhat limited by tissue attenuation. But again, with uh, newer techniques, we're decreasing uh, some of these potential limitations. You know, for this particular application, we think about CTA being relatively new. So can you spend a couple of minutes talking about it and what it is and when you might use it? Yeah, so CTA has been, we consider it kind of the new kid on the block, but as cover from Time Magazine from 2005 indicates, it's actually maturing as a diagnostic technique. It provides highly accurate views of the coronary anatomy. CTA has a number of advantages that can really accelerate the diagnostic ED evaluation. Each generation of imaging techniques has improved accuracy. Now we're looking at approximately a sensitivity of 99% with a specificity of 89% derived from a meta-analysis of about 1,300 patients who also underwent coronary angiography. One of the things that may offer some long-term health benefits is the ability to identify patients with non-obstructive disease. These are patients who you would initially consider discharging from the emergency department. They would have normal stress perfusion imaging, but they may have some soft plaques and the patients are at risk for long-term adverse cardiac events and may be candidates for aggressive secondary risk factor prevention measurements. So this may be a patient population in which you kind of add to your observation area where you consider adding preventive medicine measures at the time of discharge. It can identify other causes of chest pain, particularly pneumonia. Uh, people have talked about the triple rule out where you exclude pulmonary embolism and aortic dissection at the same time. In general, that's a much more technologically difficult and logistically difficult study to do. And in most cases, if you're looking at the coronaries, that's what you're going to get. This is a comparison of three of the randomized trials that have looked at patients who have come in the emergency department who have randomized to either standard care, which included either treadmill testing, no testing, or some other type of stress testing, or in the CT-STAT trial, the control group was myocardial perfusion imaging. In general, what you see is overall outcomes are relatively similar between the two. In general, there tends to be a higher rate of revascularization in the CT arm, primarily because once you see a coronary stenosis, there's often the thought you should go ahead and fix it, particularly in someone who's presenting with chest discomfort. Time to diagnosis tends to be shorter in patients undergoing CT, but overall cost benefits have been somewhat variable between the two. Although the emergency department stay is shorter in the patients undergoing CT, costs may actually be increased because of the significant increase in the number of patients undergoing coronary angiography 
and particularly one of the big drivers of cost is those patients who undergo revascularization. So if we kind of compare the two, CTA, a, an anatomic imaging technique versus functional imaging using some sort of stress testing, the upside is clearly faster ED throughput, but a downside is significant more exclusions. We do run into issues in which patients who have, may have arrhythmias, uh, heart rate may be too fast, which may affect the overall imaging. There is tends to be an overall increase in cost, primarily related to the higher rates of coronary angiography and revascularization that's performed, with no difference in mortality in short and long-term outcomes. The other downside of patients who undergo CTA is that we do have to consider is the potential for other findings that we were unexpected, such as particularly pulmonary nodules, which often leads to substantial downstream costs related to either additional imaging to evaluate those incidental findings and or further diagnostic tests, such as lung biopsy, just to make sure that there is no underlying lung cancer. And I think to me that's one of the larger bugaboos of using CT is trying to figure out who is responsible for ultimately looking at and managing those incidental findings, particularly the patient who may present to the emergency department that does not have an identified primary care provider. We have reviewed a ton of testing options today, so can you review for me how we're going to decide which one to do and which ones aren't appropriate in any particular patient? Well, the guidelines, I think, provide a, a good basis to sort through that. As Kristen mentioned before, the non-ST elevation ACS guidelines recommend treadmill testing as the alone as the appropriate person, uh, patient population who can't exercise, who doesn't have ECG abnormalities. We also have some recommendations for an appropriate use criteria that I was had the honor of being able to participate this in, in a minor fashion, looking at what types of testing we should do in patients who present to the emergency department with chest discomfort. And I think the key thing to kind of look at this is to look at the bottom line. These are the patients that have an equivocal ECG and or troponin for ACS. The recommended modality in this particular patient population is primarily some sort of imaging to go along with it, with maybe doing treadmill testing and maybe doing coronary angiography. However, if we look at those patients who present with a negative ECG and negative troponin for ACS, all the imaging tests, including treadmill testing alone, are considered appropriate, whereas coronary angiography is the initial test in this patient population is considered rarely appropriate. So those low to intermediate risk patients some sort of stress testing would be appropriate, not coronary angiography, which should, should primarily be reserved for those patients who clearly have a diagnosis of ACS. So what about CTA? Again, CTA should be used primarily in the same patient population we would consider doing imaging with an additional recommendation that it can be considered in those patients who have inconclusive results from prior exercise or prior pharmacologic stress testing. Some of the important caveats are patients who have known coronary disease or severe coronary calcium really limit the ability to interment the CTA. Those are the patients should undergo, preferentially should go some sort of stress imaging instead. To clarify one thing that I've been wondering about as you've been talking today, what happens when the imaging study and the treadmill that you got are discordant? They don't agree with each other. How do you go about settling that discrepancy? What do you do when you have that discordant finding where your treadmill is positive and your imaging is normal? This is results from three different cohorts in which patients develop ST depression, some of them significantly, but had normal imaging. Overall, their annual risk of cardiac death or MI was exactly the same as if the treadmill was negative and the imaging was normal. So essentially, these patients 
the vast majority of them have a false positive stress ECG. My last question for today, Dr. Contos, is what patients should undergo coronary angiography with the goal being reperfusion? The larger the defect, the higher the overall risk. The overall cutoff appears to be right at about 10%. Patients who have perfusion defects that account for more than about 10% of their heart do much better with revascularization as opposed to medical management here in the yellow. And conversely, those patients who have very small areas of myocardial risk either 0% or less than 1% to 5% or 5 to 10% actually do similar, if not worse, with coronary angiography and revascularization as opposed to medical management alone. Current recommendations identify patients who have considered to have a high risk, more than a 3% annual mortality, should be patients who should undergo further evaluation. And typically what we're talking about is these patients should be referred for coronary angiography. Those who have significant LV dysfunction have a high risk due treadmill score, large perfusion defect, again, particularly if it's more than 10% or it's an anterior defect should undergo coronary angiography. Multiple defects usually indicates multivessel disease. Again, coronary angiography would be the next step. Conversely, lower risk patients, those who either at intermediate or low risk can either undergo medical management for the intermediate risk patient. And in those who have low risk due treadmill score, very small perfusion defects, likely related to attenuation. These patients typically don't have significant underlying coronary disease, and further evaluation is not necessary in this setting. And that's going to wrap it up for this chest pain wave one discussion on making dollars and cents out of stress testing. Thank you to Dr. Newby and Dr. Contos for being here. And all those listeners out there, thank you so much for giving us your time today. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series through the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine feed through Apple Podcasts. You can read our associated blog posts at www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.